Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 12 of the Dis Disability Dish, the UML Perspective. I'm Jody Rachens, the Director of Disability Services here, and I have a smidge of laryngitis going on today, so you can have my gravelly voice, which is a little unusual, um, but we're, we're excited to talk about today's topic today. Um, we're talking about an overall thing about being a distracted society, but we're also looking into um, ADHD a little bit more closely um, and how it um, presents in sort of a young adulthood and adulthood and as well as um, there's sort of a national um, medication shortage and how that might be impacting people. So we're going to cover a lot today. Um, and this just goes along with the mission of our office to reduce disability and have conversations to flip the scripts on the strengths that can show through various disabilities. Um, so we're providing representation and discussion around various topics on disability. Um, one disclaimer is that we don't expect anybody to be experts per se in this podcast. It's really just a discussion and a conversation. We're all the experts of our own experience, and that's all we can bring to the conversation. So it's really just about opinions and perspectives. Um, and I'm going to introduce my co-host, and she'll also introduce the first question. Uh, hi, my name is Lauren Tornatori. I'm the Senior Assistant Director of Disability Education and Enhancement here at UMass Lowell. Um, and I'll ask the first question and also I'll answer it first. Uh, we just kind of introduce ourselves, our role at the university for our students today, just talking about your major and year. Um, for staff and faculty, department and title, and your relationship to the word disability. Um, so again, I already talked about my title here at the university. I'm, I've been here for about seven years. My relationship to the word disability, uh, I hope nobody listens to previous podcasts because I tend to change it. <laughs> <laughs> every time slightly. Uh, but I would say my relationship is really has to do with the, the people that I work with, uh, the students, faculty and staff who have a variety of needs. Um, so I just see myself as someone who can meet people where they're at and, you know, get them the resources that they need in order to move through their career here at UMass Lowell. Um, so if anybody else wants to go next in terms of your name, your role or title or class year here at the university and your relationship to the word disability. I'll step in since I'm the other staff person here. Um, I'm Diana Walker-Moyer. I'm a nurse practitioner. I have been for about 40 years now. Um, I'm recently retired director of health services. And um, I, I will talk about like maybe two relationships with disabilities disabilities would be that many of our students who come for just healthcare needs, if you consider it, I mean, if you're a music major and you've got laryngitis, you've got a temporary disability, which doesn't allow you to, to continue with your studies at that point to perform. Um, so we do have students, illness in and of itself can be a temporary impairment of somebody's ability to do what they normally do. Um, so we do that. We also interact frequently with the, the Office of Disability Services here at UMass Lowell, um, both in their ability to help us support students and in our shared care of students. Uh, personally, I would consider myself to have a visual disability because I, without the assistive devices of contact lenses, I'm legally blind um, without them. So there is, you know, if I don't have my visual aids, I really can't function. Yeah, and then how can you deal with people like me popping in your office asking about mysterious bug bites um, <laughs> with, uh, without that, right, Diana? <laughs> exactly. I can go next. Um, can you hear me all right? Yes. This is Stephen Lamb. I am a professor, an assistant professor in the chemical engineering and nuclear engineer, engineering department, um, and my relationship with the word disability is that I personally have uh, a disability, namely ADHD, and I have a lot of friends that also have ADHD. It seems like we kind of just find each other, because um, most of my closest friends seemingly have ADHD, um, and somehow that just happened. And I, also, I work with a lot of students with various uh, learning, auditory, and visual disabilities. Uh, 
I'll go ahead. Um, <clears throat> my name's Amanda. I'm a graduate student in the School of Public Health. I'm also a nurse. Um, my relationship with um, the word disability uh, is, I guess, um, now is I get some help from the Office of Disability Services, and I've been a much more successful student because of that. Um, my graduate student journey and the tail end of my bachelor's degree has gone like swimmingly fabulous. I also have a diagnosis of ADHD along with some other stuff, and I feel like revealing that and asking for help has it's, I've gotten such amazing support and I feel like the other 25 years it took me to get from like the first class I took at UMass Boston to the senior year that I started at the beginning of like last year to get to graduation to then come to UMass Lowell this year, like wouldn't have taken 25 years along with some other disruptions along the way if I knew that I could have gotten the support along the way from disability services, but I also think maybe 25 years ago, the stuff I needed support with might not have been considered something that you needed support with. And now I have kids of my own that range in age from adults to younger kids, and one of them has Down syndrome, so that's an obvious disability, but I have kids that have ADHD and the support that from the older ones, no support, and the younger ones, the ones that get support now, it's like remarkable the difference it really makes that like just to tweak things a little bit and to look at it differently, really like as you said earlier, Lauren, to meet kids where they're at or adults, anybody really where they're at as, as opposed to just like forcing everybody into the same box, it really does make such a huge difference. I love it. So I'm glad to be here today. Thanks. Last but not least. Oh, Matt, it seems like we lost your audio. Oh, yeah, we had you. Oh, yeah. Well, okay. Yeah. I there pressed we go. The, <laughs> uh, yeah. Sorry about that. Um, hi, I'm Matt. Um, I'm a senior in plastics engineering um, and I'm diagnosed with ADHD. Um, you know, for what? the disabilities um we're talking more about the disabilities itself or disability services is like whatever your relationship is to that word disability okay um it is it feels in some ways like a really difficult challenge to overcome on a day-to-day -day basis but it can also be with that hyperactive element can be i don't want to say superpower but it does feel very it, yeah, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, it does, it does really help when you absolutely 100% need it. It sometimes really kicks in at the right moment. But, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a weird to have this sort of uh, really strong crutch, I guess. Um, but yeah, uh, excited to be here to talk about uh, my relationship with that and uh, my own perspective on some of the things we're going to talk about. So yeah. Thank you, everybody. Um, I've mentioned before that I have sort of a complicated relationship with the word disability. I do this on a daily basis for a profession. Um, I also have a chronic medical condition, Crohn's, that I've had for well over a decade, and it's very under control, so I don't often think about it. But something that will come up in our conversation today is when I've had medication difficulties, um, how that has reminded me that I do kind of have a disability status. Um, and I also have a functioning anxiety disorder that I manage. Um, and I'm married to my husband who has ADHD and takes medication. Um, and, um, and we have been working through the medication shortage um, in our family and what that might, uh, what that has meant for us in the last couple of weeks in terms of sort of a level of stress in terms of acquiring the medication. So it's really present in my life right now, uh, personally as well. Um, so let's kind of dig in. Like the first question is really sort of big picture. There's sort of this phenomenon that was rolling around before the pandemic, but has really kind of come to fruition since the pandemic that 
in general, overall, we're a distracted society right now that kind of brains have changed in terms of our ability to stay focused on target, memorize, like all these executive functioning, like hold on to multi-step things that we want to hold on to a list of more than three items, you know, those kinds of executive functioning things that somebody with an ADHD brain is already managing. And I just kind of wanted to know what people's thoughts are. Like, do you agree that we're in an distracted society? Sort of what's going on there? Um, I can say a few things on, it's a little tad unrelated. Um, but, um, you know, I am a big, like movie TV, video game buff. Like I, I love that kind of stuff. Um, and it seems to be that in, from what I have seen from overall, what is produced that there's a lot of focus on like visual elements, which I would like somehow refer to like kind of keys jangling, like, and there seems to be somewhat of a lack of substance when it comes to like story and stuff like that, which I, I'm, you know, I'm an amateur, right? I write from time to time, whatever, not really a huge thing, but um, it, uh, you know, it like really, when you have a bombardment of the entertainment industry, just focused on making sure that your mind stays focused on what you see and is continually stimulated without any sense of like, of, you know, of thinking about things. Um, it's sometimes, you know, like seeing without thinking, right. And just uh, like, uh, reinforcing that, um, it can kind of create a pattern of expectations and people get into the instant gratification. I think it's discussed later, but, um, and another point is on social media. I don't personally do a lot of social media, but I know plenty of people who do. And I, it's, it boggles my mind how they can have you can have somebody check in on every single day on like every single thing that their friends are up to and stuff. And it's fine. It's fun because social stuff, social interaction is important. Uh, however, we are like constantly needing something to do. We always have something to do. You know, there's always, particularly with the cell phones and stuff. But yeah, that's, um, yeah, those are my two things I wanted just to throw out there. Yeah, I totally agree with that. So I think that even before the pandemic, this is, kind of already started, right? For a lot of the things that Matt was saying that there's just so much impetus to get people to pay attention to technology, right? Namely your phones, uh, digital media. Uh, but that's kind of really accelerated, I feel, in the last few years because of kind of a loss of structure in a sense, because, you know, we've kind of been removed, a lot of people were removed from their workplaces. So then, you know, now you are kind of much less constrained, right? Because at home, you can kind of just pull out your phone and look at it whenever you want. Right. Whereas, you know, it'd be harder in most workplace environments, uh, particularly if you're not in an office, to just watch a YouTube video for an hour while sitting at your desk, right? So for me, I find coworkers. it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I guess it depends on what work environment you're in. Um, but yeah, I, I, I find for me personally that, like, I have, feel this, like, magnetic pull towards my phone almost. Like, if I don't know what's on it, I almost have a sense an underlying sense of anxiety <laughs> like that, you know, mm -hmm. I should probably check it because something probably happened. Um, and then in the morning, even though I know it's terrible for you and at night, like I want to have my phone away from my bed, but I find that just so hard to do <laughs> that. Uh, it's like my first instinct when I wake up is to check the phone. And then before I go to bed, like I tried it for a couple of weeks where I had my phone in a separate room and I would just sit there thinking, what am I, what am I supposed to do? Right. <laughs> So I definitely feel that, you know, it's society at large is going through this kind of distraction epidemic. But I think for people with ADHD who have dopamine deficiencies, it's kind of even worse. Yeah, yeah well, what you've just described, um, Dr. Lima, is, is this piece of addiction that sounds a lot like nicotine. I mean, the first thing a person does in the morning, they want that cigarette. The last, so it's, it's interesting how people do that. And I, I don't know if people can remember back to the blue laws. So we used to not, stores were not allowed to be open on Sundays. Televisions, the all programming kind of stopped between 11 and 12 at night. And what you're referring to, Matt, is that these things go on 24 seven and can be mindless. I mean, it's, it's constant entertainment without engaging the brain in a thought process. It's just being a passive participant right. in that. The other thing that concerns me, and, and so I think that, well, all of that contributes to, to distraction, but I wonder, and I don't know if maybe somebody has done this study, but if you have your phone on you almost 24 seven, 
then and every few minutes or multiple times an hour, there's a little ring or vibration or something that alerts you. If you if you were to, if I had a little poker and I poked you every 20 minutes all day long, would there not be some neurological changes there? Oh. Would that not change our ability to attend to things because we're constantly disrupted and distracted by this little poke? My question, I don't know if studies have been done on it, but I think there should be, because I, I do. I think that is, is a detriment to all of us in our continuing ability to pay attention at any time if you're constantly have this mild little, mild, or this little interruption. Mm-hmm. Well, Diana, did you just give anybody like a dissertation idea or something? Huh. Is that, well, was that free? Was that free advice or like, you know, just I coming just, out there? It's hard. Somebody in the psychology department, right? Yeah, say, hey, see what they have. Here's an idea. Yeah. I would say, you know, in terms of the distracted society, like I agree with what everyone said so far in terms of like uh, those things have definitely accelerated. I feel part of it has been has been good in terms of being able to get in touch with people quickly. I think the hard thing for me was a lot of those things came through work. Right. So like we all are on teams and teams can be nice because we can message each other really quickly. But it is like having a phone on your computer at the same time where there are times where I'm trying to meet with a student and I'm getting and there's no way to shut it off without shutting off too many notifications is like these constant dings or banners like coming across my screen telling me like someone messaged you like this email came through like that kind of thing. And so I think for me, the hard part when we started implementing those things was to shut them down, like to sign off, to say, I'm not going to look at those things. I'm not putting them on my personal phone, you know, because I needed some kind of boundary because I started getting migraines um, from being on the screen and being too close to the screen all day long, especially when we were all working remotely. Um, And I think the other thing so far that's been brought up is kind of that, that expectation of the answer right away too, that like, I find myself having to say like, okay, well, somebody else could be in a meeting and that's why they're not responding. But also the, uh, you know, trying to emphasize that with students at times when I have students who are younger coming right in from high school and trying to explain to them, you know, when I'm meeting with you, I'm not writing emails and doing stuff. So it's the same thing when, you know, someone, if you email me, I might not be able to answer right away, you know, because otherwise there are times where I'll get emails like one right in a row within like, you know, a minute or two minutes within each other with someone expecting an immediate answer. And there are times where I have to say like, you know, I might've had to be thoughtful in my response and I might've been busy and I just couldn't get to that at the same time. Um, So I think sometimes I feel pressure to hurry up and answer things because I feel like that's the expectation that other people have in me sometimes. And so I have to, I try to step back from that at times. That's very healthy. (laughs) Boundaries are so good. I'm like a big, like no phone, no screens in my room, like the little galaxy lights. I have all my kids do that. Like my old, one of my teenagers goes to boarding school where like they get demerits if they like have electronics on after 11 o'clock at night. Like they have to be unplugged, no phones, no computers, no iPads. I love it. Like they just came back from like a camping trip where they were like out in the woods for like 10 days in the Maine wilderness. I think it's beautiful. Where's yeah. every penny? Yeah. <laughs> it really like is. Teenagers, especially like to reset your whole like circadian rhythm and like your whole like sense of being. I feel like it's partly, I think, because I'm older. So like I lived in a time before, like you could be like, beep, 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 beep. I remember like at the beginning of cell phones, I'm like, this is so swell. You can like call whatever. And it wasn't that long before, like I used to like make a joke that I'd be like, it's a leash. It's a leash. I can't get away from anybody. Like I used to think of like my time commuting as like my free time. Like I could just let my mind drift and like this is pre-podcast, like listen to like audio books and stuff like that. But even now, like podcasts and stuff like that, I'd be like, don't call unless it's an emergency. Like that's my free time. It's like the only time I'm like literally, literally alone, literally like where I don't have to be talking to anybody. I put my phone on do not disturb all the time and just put like 
the only people that like I would really need to talk to in an emergency is breakthrough. Like my parents, if there's a medical emergency, my brother, if like a medical emergency, like my kids, the nurse at my daughter's school, like that type of thing. I feel like you have to like start to protect yourself from all of the like stuff that can come through and like retrain. Like I can remember when I went back to school because I was working and I had kids and the pandemic and all that. And people were like, I can't even believe it. like, how did you squeeze that in? I'm like, I went off. So I stopped doing social media. I stopped Facebooking. I stopped Instagramming. I'm like, it's crazy how much time you'll waste if you put that away. Like how much time you'll get back in your mm -hmm. life. It's so sad to say that if you refocus, like how much time you have to like read and like take a class and like be successful, take another class. It's kind of amazing, but you have to like retrain yourself that like you can be productive with that time. It's like so many different little time sucks that you don't realize, like being a nurse, you want to be like, oh, I'm always, call me, it'll be fine. But you really do have to set boundaries with people at work because they'll like call a million zillion times for a million zillion different things. You have to be safe. You have to, if you fall apart, nobody cares. They'll just be like, we'll just shut sweep you out the door now <laughs> but i suppose that's what being in your 40s like you have a little wisdom on that so yeah well i just i just turned 40 amanda so i'm hoping so there i'm protecting you lauren you're trying to protect me to be there to take care of people the guardian of the 40s exactly yeah, i feel yeah even though kind of i'm 32 and you know i did not have a smartphone until i was of 18 so I kind of understand you know the right thing to do but even still like knowing the right thing I find it hard to kind of consistent consistently stick to it because kind of the attraction is just so strong right mm -hmm. yeah I think it was interesting when you brought up Stephen like those times where there's not a lot to do so I think about like you know, Netflix doesn't have commercials still, right? But like Hulu does. Like, so those, I always find that when I'm on Hulu and it can be like a minute and a half commercial break, I immediately open mm -hmm. my phone to be like, oh, mm -hmm. well, I just can't, I cannot tolerate a commercial now. Mm -hmm. So I need to do something, even though it's, I'm looking up stupid things or it's not as though like Buzzfeed gets updated every 10 seconds. And yet I'm looking at it to see like, Ooh, what other fun article can I look at? Cause like, God forbid, I just sit there, mm -hmm. you know? So I think yeah. that part is really. Yeah. And I want to go back. Cause I think you said that there are some positive aspects to the technology, right? We're kind of more mm -hmm. connected and we're able mm -hmm. to do more things. One thing that I like to do or try to recently doing is just looking at the screen time on my phone so it tells you kind of how long you've been on your screen and just think about if I could remember what I did on it right so it's like I think the worst thing is that you're on your technology but like at the end of the day you have no recollection of what you're doing mm -hmm. um like before uh I was on medication I would look at my phone and it would just be like six seven or eight hours and I just have no idea where that time went uh, things are going better now <laughs> like so I'm down to one or two hours and you know, I, th I think that's generally a good exercise to try to go through is just like really kind of not that technology is bad in and of itself, but does it is it actually doing anything for you? And if it's not, and you can't account for that time, then thinking about um, like how you can try to mitigate some of that lost time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What is it adding positive to my life mm -hmm. at that moment? You know, I think mm -hmm. it's sometimes a good question um, to ask ourselves. Uh, I'm going to go into another question because kind of we're a little bit on that topic already. So I wanted to dive in a little bit more in terms of, you know, what do you do when you really do need to focus? And how do you combat that pull for instant gratification? You know, I, I know, Amanda, you kind of commented on there are times where you're putting your phone in do not disturb, you know, and I, I would say for me, I tend to do that when I go to bed, because I don't want to be called in the middle of the night. Um, I have insomnia, I will pick up the phone, I will be awake. Um, so I need to do that for myself. Um, but yeah, I, I, I can go first in terms of for me, I think when I really need to focus on something, it's usually that I need to 
Um, I need to be in a space where I'm not going to be disturbed as much with little things. So whether that's putting myself in a room where I can be by myself, I tend to want music on. I have a hard time focusing when there's just silence or, you know, for us, because we're between two hospital campuses, it's the occasional uh, noise of the ambulances coming by. Um, So there are definitely times I need to do that. Um, at work, sometimes it might be or um, like muting the sounds on my computer. So at least I can't hear it, even though sometimes the banners will still come through. Um, and for me, sometimes I have to almost set it up where I have to like go for a walk or go someplace to kind of clear my mind of, of the other things I was working on to then get into the thing that I'm supposed to be doing, because otherwise I'll just keep being distracted with what it is. So I kind of try to remove myself from the situation, come back, like make kind of a to-do list of what I need to do, and then kind of tick through those things with typically music on in the background. Mm-hmm. Um, But I didn't know if anybody else had any thoughts about, you know, when you really do need to focus and kind of come back that pull for instant gratification, are there things that you try to incorporate into your day? So um, jumping off of that, if if I may. Uh, So not just in relation to also like, like keeping away from like the distraction, you know, uh, fueled society things like also just in general for like ADHD and stuff. Um, I found like drinking green tea, plain water sometimes like I, I had remembered there was a, and I don't quote me on this, but I remember there was some sort of study that, uh, about dehydration and how it affects your ability to focus. Um, I, and I know that a lot of people, particularly with all like the energy drinks and sodas and all that stuff, you know, <laughs> people, people use these, like all these, like if you get if you get dehydrated, it can affect your ability uh, to be healthy. Oops, together. Coffee in my hands. Uh, all the time. I have water. <laughs> it, there's water in the coffee. I guess. <laughs> um, I I think that so, and what I've also done is back back like uh, going off of some things that were said also as well. Um, I you know I was fortunate enough to live in a really nice area that I can do walk around a little bit. Um, so I just head down to main street. It's just like a couple a block away or two. And I, it's a nice little park. I can listen to the screw tape letters or the art of war or whatever. I can do that on like audiobooks, So I'm not like looking at a screen either. And, but I can still keep my mind occupied, even if it's something that it's like, it's, 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 it's engaging rather than perhaps just busy work. If I may, it's like for your, for your mind, mm-hmm. um, and being able to like, it's helped me sometimes when I've got like writer's block or, I'm stuck on a homework or whatever. I'll just do that and then I'll come back and with a fresher mind rather than being more tired. Um, I've also found in long-term stuff, creating goals is really important. You know, like it's like building a mountain in which you can climb. And after you complete each objective, it feels like you get a sense of relief and accomplishment. That's a lot. That seems to, for me, is a lot better than instant gratification. And the more you do it and the more you practice, the, 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 you know, the easier it'll get. Those are my those are my points that I just wanted to make about that. I think Matt, you touched on something that I I think is practice of delayed gratification. Um, yeah. Stanford did a study a number of years ago with it with children and marshmallows on undelayed gratification, and that parts of the the premises of that study have been debunked since then. But there is something to be said for practicing that in small steps, and I think that that does help people with that. I think something else that Lauren said was the reset part. Um, and I know that's the same thing that will work for me. One of my boys used to maybe say he had to go do, he'd go outside and he'd shoot hoops for like three or four minutes. Just in the, and I just remember the bounce of the bat, basketball, basketball. <laughs> and then he'd go back inside and focus for a while. Um, but taking that break. And I think for those um, with ADHD, there is that need to kind of stop all that stimulation for a short period of time. But you might need to take more frequent breaks um, to, to, to stay on task for something and allow that. Um, as part of the ability to be able to stay focused or paying attention to that, um, whatever it is that you're doing at that time or be a project or whatever. I agree getting outside is is huge. I think fresh air um, and even in the rain, it's not a bad thing. The Japanese practice something called uh, forest bathing, uh, where they go out into the woods, it's in the woods in a natural area where there's not a lot of 
other things or, or distractions are there, but they're bird sounds, water sounds, wind sounds, things that aren't what are constantly barraging us on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. And if you can do that for a few minutes, that's good. A longer period of time on a regular basis, half an hour, five days a week, um, something like that. I think that gets in the practice of clearing the head and helping as well. I definitely, definitely. I, I think that for me, um, I have to focus a hundred percent or something on something or not at all. I find it very difficult to slowly chip away at a problem and you know, set aside time. I'm going to work on this for an hour a day and then, you know, eventually be done this paper that I'm working on. Um, I'm not kind of recommending this as a strategy. I think that's just the way that a lot of people with ADHD have to work is that, you know, they're 100% committed. Um, And in those cases, I remove myself from any kind of external stimulus, which can be very bad kind of for my personal life, right? Like if I'm working on a deadline, then I'll just say, I am not going to leave the house until this happens. I will try to not even use the bathroom (laughs) until I finish this next (laughs) paragraph. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to rely less on that kind of intense focus, but I think that's just naturally kind of how I'm able to do things is just really going deep and hard into something. Um, with that being said, there are a lot of kind of good strategies that you all talked about, right? Like eating well, going to the gym, um, drinking water, caffeine helps if you don't overdo it. Uh, but what I find hard about kind of all of those things is that uh, precisely the fact that you have ADHD makes it hard for you to maintain that structure, right? So like, I think it's good and nice in concept to do all those things. I know that I should exercise and I should do that, but at the same time, like getting off my couch feels like it's impossible sometimes, right? Because you know, I just lack that kind of dopamine from it. So um, yeah, I think even though I can constantly like trying to do those things, I find myself always falling off of it. But I think that's kind of just part of what it's like uh, for a lot of people to have ADHD, but, uh, the important thing is just to not give up in it, right? Like, I think kind of striving for it is certainly better than kind of being nihilistic about it and giving up altogether. Uh, if I, if I may just, just for one quick second, just, uh, but in there, um, with the fact if, if I were having, cause I've had a lot of similar problems as well, uh, when I have ADHD. And so, um, I would sometimes just do a little, like a little gold nugget, for for like you leave the house the 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 reward is listening to the audiobook or if it, like it just whatever it's kind of about like finding out what you particularly want in that that'll still that's not exactly horrible that's not really like bad for you specifically for focusing or anything but is still like still something that you want i guess and it's a lot easier yes it's a lot easier for somebody to take a walk if they really like walks Absolutely. And it's a lot easier to, you know, get out of the couch if you like, you know, moving around a lot. It, like, I definitely, definitely feel that my, if I had the choice, I probably wouldn't do any walks at all because I would prefer to stay indoors, but I do enjoy them though. I, I sort of like, um, the, this, what you brought up Stephen, because it's one of those slightly self-deprecating things that comes from some ADHD stigma, which is this laziness concept, right? That if you're not in it, diving in, going 100%, and you're not making a lot of progress, or you're not getting something done on a timeline that other people might expect of you and those kind of things, then you're lazy, right? And that is something that I'm guessing, you know, comes up maybe even on a daily hourly basis for you know for for ADHD where you're battling that that within your own self your that stigma societally and internally or kind of how you know messages from people around you as you were um growing up and so you know in thinking about that we know ADHD is often described as an invisible disability so i'd like to hear from people what you feel about what it kind of means for like the invisible disability and kind of how you would describe ADHD to, to somebody else, like just sort of um, how, how would you describe it? So those see where it goes. Definitely. I think that um, there is a invisibility aspect of ADHD in that. I think that a lot of people have symptoms of ADHD when you describe it to them, you say like, oh, I'm distracted or I can't do this, right? So I think that in some sense, it's not taken seriously many times. 
because um, they, like you said, uh, that can lead to people thinking, oh, if you just try harder, then, you know, you can do this thing. Um, or they see that you can really perform well at certain times. So then when you're not performing, like, they kind of just assign that to it, mm -hmm. like your lack of effort or commitment right. to that specific thing. Um, so in that way, it can be a very invisible. Um, and yeah, I, I think that's just the symptoms are because they're so kind of relatable. Like it's it's really not even kind of taken seriously as a disability at times. So that's that's kind of what I think uh, with respect to that being invisible. But I, I know that um, things are becoming more and more visible with a lot of the work that you're doing and other people that there seems to be an increase in awareness, but with that also comes an increase in uh, misconceptions about what ADHD is. I know that everybody, I mean, like, uh, I know that I've talked quite a bit uh so far um so I'll, I'll make my point as briefly as possible um but i i think that also going off of what steven said um that it that that might be also because of how um society like overall dang, the the distraction society oh everybody has adhd like it's like to, like because it the because the symptoms are more exacerbated, it makes it seem like it's the same thing. Um, it's become pretty colloquial now. Like some people yeah. will just go around saying like, "Oh, I'm so ADD today," you know, and it's yeah. like, "Wait, wait a second, you know, yeah." Um, so uh, I was going to just explain like my analogy for ADHD for people that may not have known or whatever. I don't know who's going to be <laughs> watching, but um, uh, in case you're not, so I. If I'm not on my medication, um, so it's kind of like picture your brain being like a perhaps a hotel lobby or something. Um, so when you're when everything's neat and tidy and everything's taken care of and the staff are all, you know, working hard and everything and everything's working as it should, it all it's all clean and it, it's efficient and it works and it can recall to other departments to add to like clean rooms or whatever it is. But it's all messy, right? And the staff don't care, or in this particular stance, like, you know, having ADHD and not able to, like, I, when I say the front, in the in the front of your mind, I mean, like, more, not physically, but, like, uh, uh, figuratively, like, what what's, like, going on in the front, like, going on in your head, what you're thinking about at that moment. Um, it's kind of a mess. It's, like, rats scurrying around on the floors and, like, papers everywhere, and it's like, it's really hard to focus on like saying, helping a customer or in this case, you know, bringing in thoughts and retaining that information um, while you're trying to focus on every little thing that's happening around and going on in the front mm -hmm. of your brain. Uh, I like that. Yeah. 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 I, and I'll kind of be quick about it. It's kind of funny because you hear a lot of different metaphors and analogies to like what it's like to have ADHD. Um, and I like Matt's one that kind of resonated with me the most, I think, is that it's like having ADHD for me is like you're driving in a rainstorm and most of the time you can't see what's going on outside. But occasionally the wipers will kind of flip on and then everything becomes clear, but only for a second. And then you're back to driving in that rainstorm and that mm. kind of imagery really yeah. is stuck with me. Um, and it is basically what I experience. I would say. One thing that I was curious about, uh, Amanda, to kind of get your thoughts is that I think a lot of times when people mention ADHD, they visualize a little boy, a little boy running around that, you know, has their hands on and in everything, interrupting people. And so, you know, a lot of times women get left behind in the conversation or don't get diagnosed until later. And so I was just wondering if we could gain your perspective a little bit um, as a woman with ADHD and what that's like. Um, well, it's true. And um, so I have a daughter, she's a junior in high school and she was diagnosed in sixth grade with ADHD. And it was pretty obvious once she was diagnosed, but I didn't like 100% see it. And at the time I was like super anti-medication. Like, I don't even know why that was the like where I stuck my flagpole in, like, I don't know why I had worked in psych nursing and was 
appreciated what meds could do to change your life. They had changed mine for other hidden disabilities and in my family. And I appreciated how it, it takes many things to get people to wellness. And we had done therapy and we'd done behavioral thing, cognitive, this, that, blah. And um, I don't know why the meds part of it was like, I was, I will, I'm going to preface this little bit with this. So addiction runs in our family and I'm um, an addict in recovery. And, you know, that's part of my story. Then a big part of my addiction is um, I'm a cocaine addict. So part of it was, I was like, you can draw a direct line from, I worked in um, addiction myself in detox and I would take histories and in, in young men, especially, and they would start about how when they were younger and it was like Ritalin and Adderall and then it was cocaine and then it was, you know, heroin. And then it was mm. like, you know, and I would be like, there's a direct line and we're not, that's why. It, so there, that's really why I stuck my flagpole in there. That's why. So I was like, we're not going to do meds. And then she did some crazy impulsive things that her therapist was like, that's the impulsivity of ADHD, like a brand new iPhone that she watched a TikTok video about like somebody that obviously was like a TikToker that got paid and like blew up an iPhone in a microwave and thought she could do it too because her like little adult 10, 11 year old brain. She cooked a brand new, that was like it. I can remember I went to work and was like, I couldn't stop telling the story over and over again. And I remember people were like, that was the beginning of the end. And I couldn't stop talking about the microwave, the iPhone, whatever. I had a little breakdown, had to take a couple of weeks off of work. So um, she went on meds, Vyvanse actually for her. And it made like a world of difference. Um, obviously she went from like really performing poorly in school. Now she's away at prep school, living her best life. So yay for Chloe. So she got diagnosed and then her prescriber in the midst of me, I was like, I don't have ADHD. I have a stomach down syndrome. And I'm my son's, uh, I was widowed when my son's father was just an infant. So I always had a lot going on. So I felt like I was a distracted disaster just because of the outside circumstances in my life, not the inside circumstances mm. in my life. But the lady was like, you might want to think about getting an evaluation. And I was like, I don't know, maybe it's like early menopause. I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. But finally, like somebody else convinced me that that's why I like locked my keys like in my car. I literally went into work and left my car running locked and had to have like somebody come all the way to New Bedford from like Norwell, which is not close and like undo my car. Like I was having all of the kind of things that people with ADHD have to the umpteenth level probably because of the outside and the inside. So I was then diagnosed with ADHD, started on meds. Oh, didn't fix everything, but things started to smooth out. Then my adult daughter, who is, she's now 30, but at the time was like 24, 25, also had an evaluation because she started to see some similarities and some improvements in the both of us and was like, maybe, whatever. So three ladies right in a row, all genetically connected. Dun, 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 dun. Then my mother, who's like the biggest secret keeper on the planet, revealed that she had taken Ritalin for like 27 years uh, because she thought she'd be judged and want to reveal it to anybody. And I was like, that information would have been so much more helpful if I had it on the, is there a family history? When I was like, there's a family history of this, that, the other thing, blah, blah, blah. No ADHD anywhere that I can find. So I feel like for girls, it's still not something that um, is like pointed to, at least not in like the suburban schools, maybe in the city schools, but I don't have a lot of experience, even though I live in Dorchester now, not and have lived here for a long time. Like, my kids went to charter schools and stuff. So we had different experiences, but I still feel like it's with girls. It's like, Oh, it's depression. It's hormones. It's like, they're getting their period. Let's get them through puberty and see what happens on the other side. I can remember with my oldest daughter, that's what they told me. And then she had some very impulsive and crazy decisions during her teen years. And then kind of leveled out then they're young adults and they're making their own decisions. So you're not really sure, but she too, the medication made a, has made a huge difference for her. And I wish that they girls were looked at. It looks different than boys, but mm -hmm. it's still there. It's just a little bit 
different. It's just not as busy. It, it's the yeah I, I i totally see where you're coming from this was totally new to me about uh i mean i was i was aware of the bias in the medical uh field particularly when it comes to race or sex but um i i'm and uh it was interesting hearing about this for the first time um my question that yeah um so i had a question what was it oh um a little just to kind of like follow up maybe more about like as a parent, right, and your kids are really, really important to you. How do you feel that? Because that that takes up probably a lot of your your conscious thought. And I wanted to get more uh, like understanding from a parent's perspective of having ADHD, but yet being like, like you know, I I would I, if I had kids, I would absolutely be infatuated with them. So <laughs> my like uh, like I'm just curious to see how that does it actually does it really seem to affect uh, like you being a parent affecting the ADHD and how to that I'm just curious how so do you think that like that I didn't see it or oh no 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 like just, just how it, it affects to... just how it affects you and like perhaps stress or anxiety well or... yeah parenting or... is something that requires a lot of executive function right so <laughs> I would imagine that would be I think that's what Matt's getting at yeah oh I feel <laughs> yeah. like remember earlier when you referred to superpowers I feel like yeah. sometimes there's some superpowers that come along with the fact that like I can keep like many things going in the air at the same time. Not always like 100% successfully, but like I have a lot of things. So like my youngest, he's eight and he has Down syndrome. So like when we were talking about like, what do you do to like keep things going when you really have to get something done? That's like always challenging because Nikki has no sense of time and no sense of anything and will literally hang on my elbow like so I'll be typing and he holds onto my elbow like literally and I'll be like please on this elbow that's a good one like stand on the other side and that'll be fine because it's like that's the dominant one like you're killing me with trying to type so he um it's I don't, it's just, um, I've never lost one of them. I mean, I've locked us out. Oh my God. Bad, but, you know, I mean, we just, I mean, I feel like as a mom, you're overtired and you forget stuff. Anyways, I mean, I've always, this is who I've always been. So this is how I've always mommed. I think I'm a good mom and my kids love me and I've yeah. done a good job. They're successful humans, the grown-up ones and the younger ones are becoming successful humans. And we all, we have a good time together and I am infatuated with them. So I don't know any other way. So yeah. that, there, there you go. <laughs> Matt, I could have an entire podcast conversation about how my husband and I navigate parenting. We have two very little kids and with his ADD and with me and sort of how we're constantly sort of, there's a, there's a, a, a philosophy that we follow the fair play philosophy. It's a book in concept. Mm. And we, we reshuffle the deck all the time on who holds which cards to deal with what in the family and raising mm -hmm. our children. And are your kids close in age? Uh, I have a four and a half year old and an almost two year old. So they're pretty close. Yeah, that's close. And that's they, close. you know, they're very, very needy. <laughs> we're infatuated with them, but they're very, very needy. Um, rightfully so. And, you know, we're, um, you know, we're, we're, we both, we, we have a lifetime of couples counseling. We go to individual people. Sometimes my husband sees a coach and we have meetings like twice a week to make sure that we're constantly talking about sort of what's in the schedule, what's happening, but also like the bigger picture, picture macro things like, and we had to come a long way to like get to the system that we're, we're, we're in, you know, and the system works, but the minute we sort of like lag on it, we, we definitely feel it, you know, and like, we were just on vacation and my husband didn't take his medication for the most part on vacation, but we've learned that about halfway through a week of vacation, he needs to take some medication so that we can communicate again. And then, <laughs> um, but you know. there's like the slide, like it seems okay for a while, but like, even when you start to take it again, there's like the catch up after, yeah. like once you start taking it, it's not like, oh, you take it after not taking it, it instantly works. Like, exactly. exactly. It doesn't really work like that. It yeah. still stays so, in your blood. It still stays in your body and to some so, extent. Yeah. So we realize we need to kind of just maintain some, some level of it because, you know, especially like vacation is like 
not even the right word to say when you bring two little children somewhere we are parenting harder elsewhere and so like and you've broken um, your routine you're not exactly exactly so that's like a lot of new a lot of more up in the air and so it's in you know yesterday was a travel day take your medication (laughs) you know um you know that that kind of thing so um (laughs) <laughs> well, I have to I have to apologize for speaking up just then. I had uh, I did an ADHD moment and started zoning out, so that that should show you guys how. Bad. <laughs> That's well, okay. I, I'm a oh, parent. Oh God! Of, I'm, a, I'm a parent of four adult boy, men, um, one of whom has ADHD, mm-hmm. and I'll have to say what the struggle there was because it is not seen, and as you said, Amanda, it, it is different in boys and girls boys um you expect it to be he was not initially diagnosed with it because he was very cooperative but in fifth grade they were sort of like uh you know and so he finally got diagnosed because he was always like under the table or on top of the chairs or whatever that kind of thing um but he always felt less than the other boys he felt like he wasn't as good he couldn't do as well couldn't do this he had to do he had a um special ed class that's a bad word for him term what they called it but all through he went to summer school every year um, up until high school. In high school, he had a directed studies class, whatever. But I know that from the IQ testing they do standardly throughout school, he has the highest IQ of all four boys. He is the most astute at seeing stuff um, mechanically. Um, and so there's a lot of strengths there, but it took a lot of support on my part to be able to allow him to feel like he was as good as though different from. And so there's that piece of it. I think in girls, the piece that we find that's dangerous is that they tend to internalize things more. Um, And so they can become self-deprecating. You can then get stuck in the whole social media stuff with the negativity that goes with that. And so I think it's important for, for girls to be assessed appropriately. The other part is it's not just an, a disorder that's died of children. I mean, we, people who are diagnosed, some of the criteria is that they have to have had these symptoms, I think, before the age of 12, sometimes seven, you know, they look at the different, different things. But you can have adults who are never, I don't know, Stephen, when you were diagnosed, but adults who were not ever diagnosed, and, and they are. And I know I'm distractible. I don't have ADHD. Um, so, but, I, but I know that there's a spectrum of distractibility. And there are people, what makes it an invisible disability is you can't draw that line. You can't see it. But mm-hmm. it does, what makes it a disability is when people's daily activities are, are negatively impacted by it. They can't mm-hmm. get over that stuff. And that can happen in childhood and adulthood. The activities change. But I know my thing with my son was to get him to the place where he, he was taking his medication, that he, but also the, the um, like behavioral therapy, the, the, the um, habits and things that you help people form to, to overcome it. I was fortunate in that he was the youngest of my kids. So I had a little bit more time working with him. Um, but he's was the first of my kids to buy their own home. I mean, it's just, just a lot of things um, that are really positive. But again, that sense of negative self-esteem that can be um, associated with a diagnosis that other people don't have. Definitely, definitely. I was diagnosed um, when I was 30 so, or 29, around 29, 30 after I got married. So I kind of didn't know that I had a even though I had all the symptoms of it, but coming from a culture where that wasn't really discussed, like I just never really had access to that kind of information. And to the extent that, you know, previous teachers told me me that I probably have it, I kind of just brushed it off and said that, oh, everyone has, you know, these symptoms, right? This is very normal. And then it was only after I got married that, you know, because there was such a dramatic difference in expectations between me and my wife that like that kind of caused a lot of internal reflection, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, like, yeah, I think like, yeah. I feel like, I mean, I was like in my forties when I was diagnosed, like early forties, but I also had to have been like, I needed to be sober, like long enough, mm-hmm. like years long enough to have like some stability in my life to be like, this is my actual personality. This isn't like a newly sober personality. This isn't like adjusting your other meds personality. This isn't my like just trying to be a good human personality, trying to live on the planet personality. Like, you know, my 20s were kind of lost completely. Mm-hmm. So who knows what I was supposed to be like? Who knows? So, and I think when I was in high school and stuff, it wasn't even like what you said about your son, Diana. Like, girls, I don't think were even 
it was barely considered for girls back then, but the experience of like not feeling good enough and just kind of like mm-hmm. squishing it all down on the inside was very, and I came from a, like a super academic family that was like, well, if you just didn't get the grades, there must be something wrong with you. And if you can't fix it yourself, mm-hmm. sorry. So then yeah. I just went completely the other direction. Like, well, I'll just act out in every way possible. And that's a sad story. Cause I wish I had had some interventions back then, but now I'm living my best life at UMass Lowell as a public health student. It's a dream. Yay. Oh, oh Amanda. <laughs> I'm glad that you brought up, and uh, Diana, that uh, the effect on your self-esteem, because I think that is a real thing. And back to tying back to Amanda's point, I think it is kind of especially severe kind of in women that, especially women that do not get diagnosed, because there are certain, I would say, cultural expectations, depending on what culture you are from, mm-hmm. right? And even in the dominant culture, I think there are implicit expectations of women that require them to function at a higher executive level that uh, just don't exist, right? I, I would say for the most part in men. Um, and I definitely have kind of my personal experience with kind of having your self-esteem chipped away because, you know, you're told that, you know, or you see that you can't do the same thing as everyone else. So you kind of just internalize that um, as being some kind of issue with yourself maybe because you're stupid right like something like this um and I I definitely still kind of experience those feelings like even in my personal like even in my current position um and I think that's just something that is very hard to go away because of kind of the way that society is organized but I think that you know what I'm talking about kind of is probably I would imagine much much worse kind of if you are a girl or a woman Yeah. Um, I do, you know, I know we're getting into a lot of great things, but in the interest of time, we need to wrap up a little bit. We didn't even get to talk about some of the medication yeah. shortage stuff, <laughs> but you know, leave them, leave them wanting more. I do. We okay. are going to wrap up with takeaways. So everybody's going to get a moment to say some things. Um, but I just do want to be mindful of people's schedules. Our last question that we typically wrap up with is just kind of what are your takeaways? You know, what is something you'll take away with you from this podcast? Is there anything you've learned from today's discussion? You know, I think for me, listening to everyone, especially, um, you know, the it's interesting to me in terms of like the diagnosis stage in terms of, um, especially because I used to work in K through 12 schools where it was always we need to get boy, that boy, we need to get him on medication before puberty. Cause we, it could be dangerous later. And with the girls, it was always, well, it's just puberty. Let's let that play out and things like that. And so I think it's a good reminder for me when I'm meeting with students to go back to that a little bit in terms of what their experience has been thus far. Uh, you know, sometimes students are, are forthcoming with that right away in terms of a negative or positive experience coming in from high school or another school that they went to, but kind of digging into that a little bit more and asking those questions, what has your experience been up until now? Because it kind of informs me what direction we can go in or what support a person might need that they they may not have written down in a form that we sent them or something. You know, it might not come up as much so just for me that's a good reminder as a practitioner moving forward um, but I didn't know if anyone else had any takeaways I know a couple of you just have other thoughts that you just want to get in there and that's okay too <laughs> I mean if I hadn't already stated it before you know the whole um Specifically with ADHD, again, as I've said before, I understand the differences in the medical profession all in general, but I hadn't really thought about the diagnoses from the perspective of, like, you know, uh, differences in sexes. Um, that was certainly something I would definitely take away from this um, and look into a lot more in so far as, like, some of the studies that have been done, which they should, I, I think there should probably, I think there was some mention that there should be more studies involved with that or and also with the obviously with the poking thing too, but um, <laughs> yes, absolutely should be doing. We should be doing more research into that if that is something that is like really. Uh, it, it is. It seems to be indeed a issue with the discrepancy is particularly in ages, not necess- not not just in percentages too, but and also the huge age gaps as well. Um, that it that okay, we take a look at what is what. All right, how has it improved from the past? And then you take that and you go, okay, we can apply 
this logic, this logic, and this logic to be able to improve things for the future to uh, create, uh, you know, uh, either eliminate uh, whether it be like bias or uh, you know or misinformation. Or you're trying to correct things and go, you find the tr you find the train track. You just follow the tracks. Um. Uh. Yeah. Definitely would like to. I don't know if that's a possibility for perhaps a another time, but uh, definitely want to talk about the shortages. Um. But I will save that for another time and instead go with a really horrible quote that I just remembered from one of my least favorite movies that it's so bad it's good. It's 1517 to Paris and uh, they open up with a scene where um, a teacher is inappropriately talking to a parent about how their kid has ADHD and she's, I won't I won't medicate my children if and then the teacher with again like the script writing the writing is awful but the teacher says, if they do not medic, if you don't medicate them now, they will self-medicate. And then <laughs> uh, is the I, I, there's some maybe some debate, but it's not like set in stone. And <laughs> my God is bigger than your statistics. It's just kind of like it does everything. Oh, my goodness. The the total idea that this is like a normal like, no, I, my children are fine. What are you saying? There's something wrong with my child. You know what I mean? It's just kind of like so. Uh, I, I, the dismissive mm -hmm. I, element and I kind of definitely see how I had been missing out in some things that I probably could have noticed earlier. Sorry about that. I, I'm done now. <laughs> I swear. That's where I'm done. Ask for help. Ask for help. If you feel like maybe you need some help, ask for help. Like, talk to somebody and get evaluated like mm -hmm. you could just need to make bullet points and a little like post-it checklist mm -hmm. which is where I was 10 years ago and that stopped working for me and then reminders and then everything else and then when all the things that people suggest on the outside don't work like you might need more help than that and that medication isn't always a bad thing and it can help Mm -hmm. and um, be open to all suggestions. And even when you're on medication, it's not like the magic like solution, like a little wand that waves over you. You still have to do the post-its and the bullet notes and the reminders and like text your mother to like text you in the morning that it's this Wednesday. Cause no joke, last Wednesday, I was sitting in front of my computer at 1130, like, where is everybody? Oh, no. <laughs> and then I was nervous I wasn't gonna make it today because I, there was like a job thing that I had signed up to do like through Handshake. And I thought it was at 630 tonight, but it was really right before this. Because even with the bullets and the whatever and the little things and the notes everywhere I'm still overbooked overscheduled and like I do that calendar where I like mesh my kids on top of me and I can never get it straight and I always have them I like this month I have them like a week ahead of me or a week behind me or something so I've been messed up for like 10 days straight and I can't get anything done right and whatever but I was here today it was so lovely to see you all so ask for help and use all techniques and take a deep breath and don't take your phone to bed put like rain noise on and like soothing lights and your humidifier and pretend it's like 1981 I'm still yeah. taking my phone to bed <laughs> yeah I totally agree with kind of what everything what Amanda and Matt has said um, I really liked hearing from students just and I enjoy hearing from students about their experiences. I wish that we had more time to talk about that because part of the reason why I think I'm here and a lot of us are here is to kind of serve the students, right? Uh, a lot of the work that Jody is doing is trying to make life easier for both students and staff. Um, so yeah, I, I think in the future, I would definitely really like to learn more about what students are going through and how they can be helped. I think that with that being said, um, if you're listening to this and you're a student, you should definitely kind of try your best to uh, speak to your professors or faculty or staff to see what kind of support exists. Because uh, you never know, right? Like when I was going through school, I just didn't even know that you could get accommodations for disabilities, right? So um, yeah, so I think you'd be surprised. And I think that, you know, to the extent that I can make life easier for you if you're a student in my class, definitely, definitely reach out to me and let me know. Take Stephen's classes, woohoo. <laughs> <laughs> And I think what Amanda said about asking for help is is huge. 
Um, if, you, if you think you're really struggling, ask for help. And it could be that we send you to the Centers for Learning and we help you get some assistance with time management skills. Like, And that may be all that you need. Um, I think you're right. Sometimes people do need medication. Sometimes people don't need medication. They get it anyways. Um, we have a system. And of course, that's not the topic. I'm sorry. I'll get off the medication thing because I have a whole bunch I could say about that. But um, yeah. there are those who don't need medication, can do other things. And those who do need medication, but as you said, I mean, I think the other important pieces, the other behavioral techniques that you use alongside of it to assist it. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a lifestyle. So it just happens to include medication to basically, as we've said with disability services, level the playing field so that people have the same abilities um, to complete the tasks that they need to complete in their regular everyday lives and in their educational lives or their work lives. Um, so I think that the, the thing, if you feel like you're struggling, ask for help. My head is swimming from this amazing conversation. Um, and I, I'm, I'm just, you know, really happy that we had this conversation. I think my takeaway is just the thoughts on sort of how addiction popped up a couple of times in a couple of different contexts in this conversation and thinking about how people suffer in silence in different ways and, um, or not so much silence, but a different kind of silence. Um, and, you know, hopefully as we just continue to just break down stigma that we can find different ways for people to suffer a little less and um, be seen and get the help that they need so that they can be successful, as Amanda said, successful humans um, in society. That's, you know, that's the ultimate goal, right? Um, so thank you so much, everybody, for being here today. And I guess we'll have to have a, a micro uh, podcast follow-up on medication. <laughs> yes, for sure. Please. I'm going to stop recording now. <laughs>